Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Patrick Jenkins. Today, I'm joined in the studio by Brooke Masters, our chief regulation correspondent, Charlene Goff, our retail banking correspondent, and down the line from Beijing, Simon Rabinovich, our financials correspondent in China. First today, we'll look at China Construction Bank and suggestions that the second biggest bank in China may be looking for an acquisition in Europe. Secondly, we'll turn our attention to HBOS and the action by regulators against the former corporate lending boss there. And thirdly, we'll look at the trial of Kweku Adaboli, the UBS trader. First, though, to China Construction Bank, CCB. This is China's second biggest bank by assets, and they have been interviewed by us and and told us uh, quite an interesting tale about their ambitions for making acquisitions, particularly in Europe, focused on maybe UK, France and Germany. I spoke earlier to Simon Rabinovich, our Beijing correspondent, about that story. So, Simon, thanks very much for joining us. This is quite big news, isn't it, really, that China Construction Bank is signalling an interest in a in a potential foreign acquisition. It's not as if China's banks have done many of these types of deals. Uh, how seriously do you take it? Uh, uh, certainly for them to come out and say, first of all, that they're interested in making foreign acquisitions, uh, and then second of all, to, to specify that they are interested in looking at European financial institutions, and then third of all, to talk, hypothetically at least, ab- about quite a big number. Uh, putting all that together, it-, it is quite big news. Before the financial crisis in 2007, we saw a variety of Chinese banks and, and financial institutions coming out and making investments abroad. But since the crisis, uh, they- they've really turned incredibly cautious, incredibly wary. Uh, and people have been waiting to see if, if they would develop more of an appetite for-, for foreign acquisitions. And it seems with the CCB statement that, that, in fact, they might now be developing that. Well, as you say, uh, one of the interesting points was the kind of geographical focus, and the chairman talked to, to us about, at some length really, about the Eurozone crisis and the opportunities that he thought were being thrown up by that. Not, I'm sure, um, cautious bankers would be glad to hear, in the peripheral part of the Eurozone, so Spain or, or Italy, he's clearly still fairly cautious about, but particularly talking about the UK, obviously, as a non-Eurozone country, but also French and Germ- uh, France and Germany as being attractive markets. And that uh, one senses particularly Germany might be an interesting focus. We've had deeper uh, kind of political affiliations developing seemingly between Germany and China, a recent delegation by uh, Chancellor Merkel going to Beijing. And I just wonder, I mean, the, the kind of tittle-tattle among investment bankers is certainly that um, Commerzbank, which is... Uh, Germany's second biggest listed lender could be a very interesting target. Certainly, by size, in terms of their market value these days, they're um, they're tiny, less than ten billion euros for the whole bank, and probably the the, the, the government stake is about twenty five percent. So, it might be a quite interesting way for them to move forward. Well, I mean, looking at it more more broadly, 
Europe is an interesting area for Chinese banks to be focusing on on for two reasons. One is that although Chinese banks have been cautious, they have moved abroad in, in certain parts of the world, and so they do have a skeletal presence in South America and North America and Africa and Asia. Europe, they've only really had organic expansion so far. They've, they've not made any big acquisitions. So that is a big gap in, in the Chinese bank's portfolio. But the other thing is is that the reason that Chinese banks have been looking to expand abroad is that they've really been trying to follow their, their companies, and industrial companies in particular, um, as they've been expanding. And so Commerce Bank and, and Germany is, is interesting for that reason, because we have actually seen a number of Chinese uh, acquisitions, machinery acquisitions, uh, solar industry as well uh, in Germany over the, over the last six months. Um, and so you've got to think that for the Chinese companies, as they're doing more and more deals in Germany, they're, they're looking over their shoulder and wondering why there's not really a Chinese bank that's able to support them there. So it would be a good fit for Chinese banks. Uh, the, the other point as well is that what are the Chinese banks actually trying to acquire? They want to expand their, their footprint, but they also want to expand their expertise. Uh, European banks, despite all their problems, are obviously the best, some of the best banks in the world. Uh, and that's something that Chinese banks would like to, to get a hold of their knowledge of different banking products and, and their expertise in, in corporate banking. So that'd be very attractive for, for CCB. I suppose the big question that skeptics might have is, you know, is this something that Chinese banks, which, as you say, um, have very little experience on the international stage up to now, would be capable of managing? Could they could they find a way to um, own and, and run a subsidiary operation on the other side of the world when their knowledge of Western banking is, is relatively limited and there's the language problems and so on? Absolutely. That'd be a huge concern for them. And they've been very honest in acknowledging that they don't actually have the managerial expertise to run a big, sophisticated Western bank, especially one that has a big base of of retail um, depositors. So what they'd be looking for then is to buy either into uh, the more corporate side of things, which is something that they probably are more confident about being able to handle, or take not necessarily a controlling stake, but a big stake um, in an existing network, and through that stake, just gain the access to the to the sorts of expertise and knowledge that they don't currently possess. Well, all we need now is for the rhetoric to translate into action uh, in the in the months that follow. So uh, I'm sure Simon, you'll be following that as closely as I am. Thanks very much again for joining us. Time to move on to the UK and news that the former head of corporate banking at HBOS, now part of Lloyds Banking Group, has found himself at the wrong end of uh, regulatory action. Brooke, you were looking at the action that the FSA took last week. Yes, that would be Peter Cummings, who ran corporate lending. This is not at all surprising. When the, when the FSA put out their report on HBOS and said, but for the fact that it was already owned by the taxpayers, they would have fined it for serious misconduct, what they cited were the actions of the corporate lending department that Mr. Cummings ran. Now, Peter Cummings kind of has become a bit of a, well, certainly a famous figure in financial journalism over the past few years because he became associated with a lot of the big deals, big corporate lending deals that HBOS did in the boom years. Charlene, what what does he become most well known for? Well, I think in his early years, actually before he became head of corporate lending, but he was very much in that division, he was quite well known for schmoozing some of the 
sort of wealthiest entrepreneurs. So Sir Philip Green was a big associate of his and someone um, that he was renowned for helping back in the early 2000s. He actually backed um, Sir Philip's takeover of Arcadia taking a big stake for HBOS and lending a large loan. And that was a successful deal. He also had relationships with Sir Tom Hunter, a number of other big entrepreneurs. I've just had lunch, incidentally, with someone who's an associate of Philip Green who said to me, uh, Philip had boasted to him at a drink one evening, just in the midst of trying to take over Marks & Spencer, that all he had to do was call up uh, Mr Cummings and ask him for £700 million to fund his acquisition and it would be there the next morning on his desk. Um, it, he certainly had yeah. a reputation. For, yeah, and uh, that kind of sums up how he operated, which was, you know, he was there, he was almost given free reign in the company, you know, he forged these relationships personally with people um, and if he stepped in and said, you know, even if this lending uh, breaches our traditional barriers, you know, if he said, yes, it's okay, then the staff you know, hurriedly sort of set out to to make that happen. He, and he, he was, was very powerful. He was driving growth at the group, really, at a Absolutely. time when HBOS more broadly was maybe struggling or in certain of its areas. Yeah, I mean, as the mortgage lending became harder, you know, they ramped up the targets for the corporate side of the business. Sort of 2006, 2007 saw enormous growth in that side of the business. I think Brooke didn't it nearly double during those those years. 50, it rose by 50%. 50%. Okay. And what's interesting about it is the FSA faulted him not for necessarily having a stupid growth plan, which I think in retrospect he probably did, but for doing it at, at a time when he knew that the risk controls were troubled and were not up to FSA standards and he was supposed to be fixing the risk controls. So the FSA basically said, you knew you didn't have risk controls and, and you chose to go for an aggressive strategy anyway, and that's not okay. And his personal role was also very important to getting him uh, in in the regulator sites, because always when a division goes bad, the question is how, whose fault is it? And because he was so personally associated with some of the riskiest decisions, I think the regulator felt quite comfortable going after him. And so the the regulator ultimately decided to ban him for life from a financial services job. Is that right? Plus the half a million pound fine. Exactly. And at the same time, they said they had closed their investigation in regards to HBOS. So by all accounts, that means his superiors, the ones who helped set those aggressive targets, will not face personal uh, action. And it was that point particularly that Peter Cummings came out against incredibly strongly. Yeah, coming back to what I was saying at the beginning, he certainly felt aggrieved that he was the only one, the singled out. Absolutely. I mean, his language is extraordinary. He said, you know, it was sinister. He said it was grotesque. He's used um, incredibly strong language to to have a go at the FSA. He he felt it was very unfair that he was singled out in the way he was. And and actually, it's, it's very rare. I mean, we have had so few of these personal cases in the financial crisis. If you think who, you know, you, you look at anyone at RBS, no, you know, they, no one was held personally responsible. Northern, Northern Rock, Rock, they were. Couple, were right? but, but, but that, that was, was slightly more different. Specific. They, had, they were held responsible not for their strategy decisions or their overall lending policies. They were held responsible for a specific reporting failure. They clearly violated the rules. I mean, they basically misreported their um, arrearages, which, and so it, and even the FSA admits the thing they misreported is not why Northern Rock went down. Well, I suspect Mr. Cummings may have to satisfy himself with whinging to us because it doesn't, as you say, Brooke, uh, it doesn't feel like the FSA is going to take any further action against the other banks. We should move on to our final topic, which is another kind of uh, legal 
issue around uh, UBS, the Swiss bank, which had a trader famously um, a year or so ago, Kweku Adeboli, who allegedly cost the bank a couple of billion euros. This trial, which has been long time coming, has finally started, Brooke. It's been a fairly noisy affair as well. I mean, it's it's not uh, started quietly. Absolutely not. The um, the prosecution came out hard. With um, they have an email that Mr. Adeboli wrote right after he his trading positions were questioned. Right right as his scheme fell apart, in which he apologized and said he was deeply sorry for having left the mess, and basically said the fault is mine and mine alone. This is a message to his boss. Which no, this is a, it's a message to his boss and also to the compliance guy who was asking who's on the other side of these trades. And the suggestion from this is that he knew he was in the wrong, and act more importantly, his argument that his superiors knew exactly what he was doing is kind of um, nullified by the fact that he's apologizing to them for having done it for the first time right. after or very late in the day. Exactly. He doesn't say, I'm sorry, I got caught. He, he says, I'm sorry, I did this, which I think is, is probably not great news for him. It may, it may be more complicated, obviously. We have not heard the defense side. Yeah. And the trial's due to last for another, what, seven, seven or eight weeks? Probably. Um, those are always a little bit hard to determine because it sometimes depends whether the defendant takes the stand because if they do take the stand, that takes forever and there's lots of interesting testimony. And if they don't, the trial ends very abruptly. Yeah. Well, we'll obviously be watching that trial as it progresses over the next couple of months. But um, just to just wanted to record, really, that it's begun. Sadly, we've run out of time for today. That was um, all from Banking Weekly for this week. Um, thanks very much to Brooke and Charlene in the studio and to, Char- uh, to Simon Rabinovich in Beijing. You can catch up with all of the latest banking news online at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Emily Cadman. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.